Freddy's home. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. He wears a dirty brown hat. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. The bastard son of a hundred meters. They burned him to death in his boiler room. And they hid the remains. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. This is now playing's A Nightmare in Elm Street retrospective series. Welcome to Freddy 101. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Brock. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane. We got special work to do here, you and me. We will be reviewing all Freddy's films from Wes Craven's original through 2010's hotly anticipated remake. Who is that? But beware. These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You can find new episodes of this series released every week at nowplayingpodcast.com. Today we're talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, starring Heather Dawkins, starring Heather (laughs) Lankenkamp, Patricia Arquette, Craig Lawson, and Robert Englund, and directed by Chuck Russell. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie, and this is where I, and I think most of the country, was introduced to A Nightmare on Elm Street with Dream Warriors, and I, I gotta tell you guys a story about this. The trailer for this was on TV all the time. This was the first Nightmare on Elm Street to open wide. And I was so interested in horror by this. Again, as I said, I was fascinated but frightened. My sister takes me to see Crocodile Dundee. And it's where Dream Warriors is playing. And my sister knows I want to see it. So we just we sneak into Dream Warriors and stand in the back. And we stand there for maybe 30 seconds. And it's the scene where Freddy is a sink and slashes Patricia Arquette's wrist. And it so freaked me out. I went running from the theater into Crocodile Dundee. and just sat there the whole time wondering if Patricia Arquette was dead. Did you say, and that's a knife? what's funny is my sister told me that's what horror movies are they're like 90 minutes of just that as if it's like a a porno like they're nothing but killing in a horror film and that actually strangely enticed me to see it more yeah well i mean it's a big part of the appeal and uh, as a little kid i uh, couldn't get enough of being scared there was something about just the uh, raising fears in me you know it's an attraction repulsion you want to know and master what scares you and this movie's all about that so i I really connected with this one as well when I finally saw it on video the next year. I didn't go to the theaters. You want to know what my sister said to comfort me? Well, Patricia's Arquette's slice was horizontal. Many people can live from a horizontal wrist slash. If it's vertical, it's definitely going to kill her. <laughs> that is true. It's factually correct. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love my sister. That's her comfort. There you go. So, Stuart, you were scared by this movie in particular or the idea of horror movies in general? 
I was just speaking from childhood. A lot of kids like to watch comedies or cartoons, Transformers and all this stuff. My right. childhood was about steeping myself in as many horror movies as I could. I just loved it. Couldn't get enough. Wes Craven is back. Ah. Wes Craven is one of the four writers on this film. Now, let's talk about who the writers were. Wes Craven was asked to do part two. And as we said during our Nightmare on Elm Street 1 podcast, Wes Craven did not want to see a Nightmare on Elm Street be a franchise. But after part two came out, they again went back to Wes Craven and he decided that he would with a friend of his, put together a draft for this movie. The draft they put together, it's actually, remember I said I read the novelizations of this? The entire novelization is based off of the draft by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner, which is very similar in concept and to some degree in character to the final result. But then New Line felt it needed to be a little bit beefed up, so they brought in Frank Darabont, who of course, is now very famous. He did The Mist, The Green Mile. Shawshank Redemption is, I think, his high point. Yeah. And a script doctor as well. I mean, he's yeah. always working and polishing big studio projects. And Frank Darabont's friend, Chuck Russell, who directed this film. He'd go on to direct the remake of The Blob. He'd do the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Eraser and The Scorpion King. Well, what Wes Craven came up with, and again, Wes worked with a friend where basically Wes probably said a story and had his flunky do the writing, right? And what Wes came up with was fairly unfilmable on a budget. It was very surrealistic and a lot of shape changing and things. You could do it today with CGI, but back then, you know, and it, it also lacked a lot of focus and it had a lot of the same problems as the first movie, quite frankly. Mm. And so they brought in a second pair of writers who really polished the script and made it the good movie it was. Because when I read the novelization, I'm like, this is vague and sucky. <laughs> I actually reread the novelization for this podcast so I could refresh myself with which parts were Wes's and which parts were Chuck and Frank's. And oh, cool. Normally, when you see a lot of writers on a movie, that's the sign of at least a project that was in trouble. But I see this as a twofold process. They wanted to get back to what worked on the first movie, and that was a good impulse. And so they went back to Craven, and he relented and turned in a draft. And it wasn't quite what they wanted, so then they brought in real script guys. And how lucky, how fortunate for them, Frank Darabont was one of them. I attribute more than anything else the reason why he was able to pull all these different ideas together and give us Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which I'm going to just go ahead and say right off the bat, is the very high point of the whole series. It will never get any better than this. Let's do a quick plot summary. In this one, it's... Again, a continuation of the first movie. It's almost a reboot. They're just kind of like, that second movie, we're just not even going to pretend it happened. And I'm happy to play along. <laughs> yeah, nothing from the second movie is ever referenced again, in fact, in the entire Elm Street series. So it's the Halloween 3 of the series. Yeah. Or in the case of Halloween, it's the 4, 5, and 6 when they did 7. <laughs> or... <laughs> Halloween's just a mess. Go on. <laughs> It's now six years after the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and a rash of teen suicides has plagued Springwood, Ohio. And what we find out later is Freddy is back in dreams, he's more powerful than ever, and he's taking out the Elm Street children. The final Elm Street children are all holed up in a psychiatric ward at Weston Hospital, where... Nancy from the first movie returns as a psychology student here to help the kids plagued by nightmares. 
As it goes on, it turns out each of the survivors has a dream power that they use to fight off Freddy in the dream, the most important of which is probably Patricia Arquette's ability to pull other people into her dream. She pulls in Nancy early on when Freddy's about to kill her. Nancy helps rescue her. And so as Freddy slowly picks off these dream warriors one by one, they band together to fight Freddy in the dream all in one dream thanks to Kristen. Meanwhile, their psychiatrist, Dr. Neil Gordon, and Nancy's father go on a quest told to them by a mysterious nun that Freddy's body was hidden in a trunk of a car and the unquiet spirit must be laid to rest. And so Neil and Nancy's dad go to retrieve the bones and give it a proper burial with holy water and a crucifix. And so while the dream warriors are battling in the dream, Neil and Lieutenant Thompson are working on the bones, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot more detail as this goes on. All right, and let's get into the first scene because we start us right off. The first scene, again, is kind of reminiscent of the first movie. We have her building this house. So she's building this house, and I've talked about the score at the beginning of all of these. Here we have Angelo Badalamenti, who I'm familiar with from his work with David Lynch. Yep. And he's giving us this quite dissonant uncomfortable score that works but my god you'd never want to hear it on the radio i didn't realize he did the music for this movie i'm shocked i'm a big david lynch fan i've seen all of his movies and i it, usually i associate his stuff with sort of like avant-garde jazz but this score did not remind me of that i was more paying more attention to the Dawkins song falling into the fire yeah we see the building of the house a paper mache house building just doesn't carry with it the same weight as a glove does it no, it doesn't. <laughs> In fact, I thought she was baking at first. You see this mound of flour. I'm like, wow, this is really weird. She's going to make a cake. And she's very knew- good at this paper mache, I have to say. That's quite an impressive house she makes. And again, I'm not really sure why everyone is fixated on this one house. It's not Freddy's house. It's not where any murders happen. It's not a big deal. It doesn't make any sense to me why they use the house either. Horror movies always have to establish a place where evil happens. And and they've just decided by committee that this house is the place where Freddy dwells. But didn't they decide already by Wes Craven's original that he did things in the boiler room? Yeah, Yeah, I I really think that it's a great-looking haunted house, and you need a haunted house in a horror movie. But (laughs) narratively, it doesn't really work for me that, you know, this is the dream house where you go in and you end up in Freddy's boiler room. I don't don't know why this is the opening towards that world. Well, this house went into a state of disrepair in one year because now it is, like, boarded up. Of course, we only see it in dreams in this, but the house is really... An eyesore. It reminds me of the Myers house from Halloween. You know, it's iconography that they love it, they adore it, and they will use it again and again in the future sequels. The house, the jump rope, the song, all of that just triggers instantly. You know you're in Elm Street. But after we get past the house, we get into Kristen's first dream. I just like the fact that when she wakes up, she looks behind her headboard and she's there. I think that that's just an iconic moment. Yes. She's, or they've moved the bed. You think she's in the bedroom by the way that the camera is framed. And then she sits up and looks around her. And in fact, the bed has been transported to the house. And she sees the kids playing in front of the house. It was an extremely effective shot. Yeah, they'll they'll use that forever. They just love that imagery, and, and so do I. It's great. It just yeah, takes it, you there. It's perfect. It's a really great way to get you into the movie, and it's a really great way to, to show us when the dreams happen. It's really, honestly, it's, it's a great way to open the movie. It is. And, man, I think, honestly, this is 
my high point of the movie is this opening dream. You've got the girl riding the little tricycle and Krista's trying to find the little girl and she goes to the basement and the basement is the boiler room now. And Freddy attacks. This whole thing had such a great dreamy feel. It did. I'm not sure if you guys got the shining off the little girl. I did a little bit. And that was perfectly welcome, I guess, because it it seemed to work. The dream quality was great. I agree with you. And the long hallways and what's going to happen next and how Freddy plays with her is all great. She picks up the girl off a tricycle and she carries the girl around the hallway. And it's such a blatant doll. I couldn't stop thinking about why is she holding a doll? Is it going to come into play that it is a doll? Or they really expect me to buy that that's an actual little girl. It took me out of it so much. But it still was a very effective scene for the most part. I just wish they made the doll less obviously a doll, especially in close-up shots. They could have put the girl there in her hands again. But beyond that, it was an effective opening scene. Yeah. Some of the things that I love about this also is that, you know, she's running from Freddy, carrying the girl. Freddy's behind her. Freddy doesn't talk here, I want to point out. Freddy is a mute. He is just a malevolent presence trying to kill her. And she gets stuck in the blood and it had that very dreamy feeling where you're trying to run and can't. I just, oh, I love this opening dream. I like to think of, too, I mean, once you get past all of this dream imagery, uh, she returns to her bedroom. She thinks she's awake. She goes to the bathroom. And as you mentioned, Arnie, the sink comes alive. She's still in the dream. And this is the first moment of many in which we get the Freddy morphing out of the commonplace, uh, which becomes a cue and a standard that they return to again and again. And I think it's the number one thing that people really love about Freddy is that you can be in an environment that feels safe. It feels ordinary and discover that Freddy, in fact, is there in hiding and latently and will just burst out the sink handles, sprout talons, grab her and slash her wrist. And her mom finds her and lo and behold, thinks she's tried to commit suicide. Well, that's because Freddy puts a razor in her hand. Yeah. yeah. Now, How does Freddy do that? <laughs> I, I'm not entirely sure, but suicide was kind of a, on the uprise in the 80s, right? Am I, am I right? I feel like that was a Time magazine cover. I feel like that was in movies. People were talking about it. Teen suicide was a hot-button issue towards the late 80s, and, mm-hmm. I, and, and this being the plot of this movie, wow, that's kind of like from the headlines, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was. At the time. And it's subversive that the fact that suicide is not, in fact, teens killing themselves, but that there's this darker force, uh, this thing that parents don't understand and don't report that's really doing it. I think that's a great way of setting up the conflicts. It's a great way of of getting us on the side of these kids. And uh, it's a great way to flip the story into where we're going. What is essentially I'm going to call a John Hughes scenario. You know, it's like the kids are in detention. There are all these suicide recovery victims who otherwise would never have hang out each with each other who are now isolated in a psych ward and under the care of uh, mental health professionals. And I, before you go on, I want to say I completely agree with you that I think bringing this movie together, bringing these kids together and bringing the plausibility of Freddy Krueger into the real world this time, I loved. I love the concept that these parents are thinking these kids are just trying to commit suicide when there's actually something else going on. But yeah. you can totally see how the adults think it's a suicide issue, and the, the old-fashioned doctor with her ways don't get it. It's wonderful. It, it really does mirror the 80s themes of parents just don't get it. Yeah, and, it, and they've, they've tried it in all of the other movies, too, and I never felt like it was well-integrated. Here, I totally get it, and I'm totally on the side of these teens. And like I said, it feels like Breakfast Club. It really feels like they've tapped into those John Hughes, my parents don't get who I am spirit. Exactly. 
So then we're taken to the hospital. Kristen goes there. We're introduced briefly to Lawrence Fishburne. Yay! <laughs> as the as the as the good orderly, there's two orderlies. There's the skeezy one that sells drugs to patients and hits on them, and then there's Larry Fishburne, who's kind of a goofy guy. He's he's blaming the parents for taking too much LSD in the '60s for why the kids are all suicidal now. I think that was an interesting take, particularly since the last time I saw Larry Fishburne, he was a drug addict in Apocalypse Now. But you know, yeah, Larry doesn't do much in this whole movie, and I don't even know that he comes back in the series. But it's fun to see him and. You know he's he's a good he's a, it's nice to have a nice presence that understands the kids when so many of the therapists uh, are really insensitive. And we see Kristen; she's been brought to the psychiatric ward's ER for her bleeding, they, and she's fighting because they want to sedate her. Well, that's that was a hilarious line. She was fine until we tried to sedate her. Well, if she was fine, why are you trying to sedate her? You no, know, we just drug everyone that comes in here. Hi, pinprick. <laughs> Collapse on the ground. I'm just feeling a little sad. Oh, really? Click. Oh, bam. You know, <laughs> but I just don't understand it as a policy. But they definitely not so much at first, but by the end of it, you really see that this mental ward is has a draconian sense of of what's right. That drugging, sedating is the way to handle these kids, and that uh, you don't listen to them. You don't allow them to talk. Even I mean, there's a good therapist and there's a bad one. There's Neil Gordon who will become sort of a hero character. And then there's Elizabeth Sims, who is sort of the nurse ratchet, if you will, of the psych ward. Good oh, reference. Perfect. Yeah, perfect that, was, yeah, that is actually great. Now, Nancy gets a great entrance here, calming Kristen down. And, whoa, the first thing that struck me about Nancy is her hair. Yeah. That is a big fucking hair. That was Not sick. only that, yeah. but it's she's got this like a uh, Bride of Frankenstein streak of gray in it and I just I kept thinking about how, you know, 6 years prior she was like, "Oh my god, I look 20." And now <laughs> yeah. it's like, "Now you look 40." Like, "Do you have progeria? Are you just aging like in bizarre ways? Like, why does she gone gray?" I mean, I guess it sort of lets conveys the idea that she's been through a lot and yeah. Well, remember, yeah, there's a scene where she wakes up from a dream and her mother goes, "Oh my god your hair and like a big streak in her hair went gray so it's actually continuity why oh. she does she yeah. obviously sees a fucking hairstylist with that big do <laughs> why they don't put some color in that i'll never know <laughs> they were too busy doing dawkins hair <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't enough hairspray on the set no there really wasn't you yeah. gotta go to dawkins first before you mess with anybody else arnie Arnie, my, my first thing with Heather Lankenkamp when she walks in was, crap, she didn't get any acting lessons. No, she didn't. <laughs> I said in the first podcast, she never gets any better. No. <laughs> she is terrible in that. Terrible. Yeah, can I say a twofer in which we're the main characters are Heather Langenkamp and Patricia Arquette? I'm really worried at this point because neither one of them are actresses that I think of as having a lot of emotional quality to it. I'm like, this is going to be stilted, to say the least. But I, uh, I like Patricia Arquette, for, by and large uh take away true romance and tell me any other performance she's given where she's good Um, okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah i liked her in true romance too but uh that's it yeah and she's bad in this movie too though her some of her lines she's not terrible but she's not terrible heather lankenkamp is flat out blatantly terrible no no there are times when patricia arquette is terrible not but you know but she has other scenes when she's actually scared for example where i actually get her being scared, whereas when Heather Lankenkamp is scared, she has the same expression on her face as when she's yelling at her dad that he owes her and the exact same inflections going on. 
I mean, there's, there's a difference in bad here. I mean, I'm not saying either one of these people deserve Oscars for their work in this movie, but the last movie, all with all its faults, actually had some solid acting for a horror movie going on. Here, we have this typical stuff we see in horror movies where some people understand what's going on and what they have to do, some people are playing the role to a T, and some people are just shit in the bed. And the lead actress, of all people, they couldn't ask her, I mean, oh, it's so frustrating. <sighs> And here's what's funny is recasting was never an option because Wes went to her before he ever started draft one and said, will you come back? And she said yes, thinking Wes was going to direct and know the whole thing. So uh, she agreed. Uh, personally, I'd be like, let's get a new Nancy. We're, this is obviously a new era for Nightmare on Elm Street. It's, they got a big budget. They got a wide release. Why not bring in a new Nancy? <laughs> true. Yeah, I I would always support that decision. But I will say this to this movie's credit, as unsatisfying as I find either one of those actresses in general, they're not a huge problem for me here because there's so many other characters. We're instantly introduced to, what, six other people that are also having these problems. And as a collective, they're much more enjoyable than as individual performers. Agreed. The interaction between the different kinds of characters works. Yeah. yeah. The drug addict and the sarcastic kid, the loudmouth, the nerd in the wheelchair – it, it all works. It together. I love Taryn. Can I just say I think that she's my favorite. She's the drunk out druggie. I don't know why you would put a drug someone in drug withdrawal in the same room as people that you know were just suicidal. But well, she was also suicidal. Everyone there had attempted suicide. Okay, so she had tried to OD. I wasn't quite clear, yeah, but we're not sure how they tried to commit suicide. They don't have too many marks, except but... for the kid in the wheelchair who jumped out of a building or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, we, he's in a wheelchair because of that suicide attempt. Strangely, my favorite of the kids is Philip, the puppet guy. He, that actor, just. He, he lit up the screen when he was there. His line readings were great. He reminded me of some other actors. and I, he... Yeah. <laughs> Corey Feldman, maybe? Yeah. I was like, did they clone his DNA? I'm like, that's Corey Feldman. The first time I saw him, I thought it was. I'm like, I didn't know Corey Feldman was in Friday the 13th and this movie. Oh, wait. That isn't Corey. And I looked him up. He had been in movies with Corey. He <laughs> had been it. in Stand By Me and Explorers. And I'm just like, no way. Like, this man has had a whole career of being in the shadow of Corey Feldman. And that's got to hurt. That's a dark shadow. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> like the guy just for that. And he is fun to watch in this. He doesn't. He we, he's the first one to go, so I can't say I grew an attachment to him, but I did like him. I like everybody here. Yeah, in these opening scenes, though, he's the one that, you know, I was sad to see him go so quick. Because mm -hmm. he's got a great snarky, sarcastic delivery that I like. And the smirk yep. on his face, too, was kind of fun. It was a little bit of Sean Astin there, too. But, yeah, they're all suffering from the nightmares. They've all seen Freddy. And Sims does not seem to want to give credence to Freddy. I think therapy, science is all seeing this as these kids are doing it to themselves. They've created their own problems because they're not dealing with real things that are in their past. And that she's just not going to hear the fact that this is all really a evil physical spiritual crisis essentially you know, Stuart, funny you should say that because none of the kids come out and say it's freddie in my dreams they're all so scared to mention it but they all know with each other mm -hmm. that it's going on if they, they don't actually say so in group that freddie is coming to them in their dreams openly before nancy gets there perhaps the woman would be justified in her thinking that one person made this guy up and everyone else is jumping on that bandwagon but since they're mm -hmm. not sharing that in group 
It doesn't make any sense that she lumps it all together. They kind of share it in group because during Nancy's first group session, Philip says that they all dreamed about this guy before they met. He brings that up and Dr. Sims just kind of blows him off. Okay, then maybe, okay. If they did, then maybe that's what justifies her reactions. Maybe that's what's going on here. I I must have missed that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good thing to give Nancy, you know, that she's become this expert on dreams. She's flown through school and become a grad student and is a star in, in dream therapy. I think all of that is, is good backstory. The fact she's on Hypnosil, a drug that actually suppresses dreams, and thus why she's not still dealing with Freddy. Can I, can I talk about the Hypnosil for a second? Yeah. I love the scene where Dr. Gordon is looking up Hypnosil. <laughs> because he's on this ancient computer, right? And the computer's going, boop, 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 which is the sound of a five and a quarter inch floppy. I'm a computer geek. I got off on this. But what an advanced use of computers for a movie in 1987. Yeah. Because there's no internet. Nowadays, you're looking and you see him looking up a drug on the computer and you think internet. No, he's got these floppies. Was the physician's desk reference even on floppy disk in 1987? I don't know. And if so, would it be how often? would they be sending the updated floppies for the experimental drugs it's actually unrealistic that he'd use a computer to find out about this drug but i love that he does and the computer never comes back into it it's not like he dies by computer later because he's a computer dork it's just one of the first modern uses of computer i've ever seen in a movie I it's also real... love the part when the computer said, do you want to play a game? <laughs> <laughs> it's real charming. And you're right. It's the 80s. We were having a fascination with computers. They had to get a computer shot in there. And, and uh, <laughs> as a kid, I didn't question it. Computers could do anything. Sure. Yeah, they could tell you whatever drug was. I mean, they were smarter than the people. <laughs> it's just It was a very internet use of a computer long before the internet was around. You're completely right. It's, it's why this feels like a timepiece. It's why it feels like it couldn't happen at any other time other than in the 1980s. In the I 90s, it would have been the internet. And then before, there would have been no computers. I love the fact that we were talking about a movie about a guy who kills people in dreams, and the one thing we say it's unrealistic is the computer usage. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Philip's the first to go, as we mentioned. I love this death. Oh, it's great. It is great from every part. I love the stop-motion clay where Philip makes puppets out of clay. And when he goes to sleep, the puppet turns into a Freddy puppet and then grows. And then now Philip's his puppet. And he's, Philip's known for sleepwalking, and it's Freddy walking him. That's great. It was yeah. perfect. It was absolutely perfect usage of what they set up of sleepwalking. It was of what the character elements of this character and how they killed him with the was it was it being was he being controlled by his veins? It looked that way. Yeah, the the marionette strings were actually tendon something pulled out from his wrists and ankles, uh, puppeting him along. It was interesting to note that he actually walks through a locked door and that the relationship between dreams and reality is not only in a dream can Freddy do anything to you, but when you are dreaming, Freddy can manipulate your body to do things in the physical world that you couldn't do. Like put a razor in Patricia Arquette's hand. Right. Yes. You're absolutely right. And when he was on the tower, all the kids are screaming to get at him. God knows why they didn't try to go to the tower. But the door was locked. Well, yeah. okay, but but <laughs> but they all crowd around a gated window. And so I was like, well, if these guys a sleepwalker, known for being a sleepwalker, why don't they lock his door? 
And after his death, the doctor says we're going to lock all the doors. But Well, they locked the ward. I mean, they knew the ward was locked. Here's here's what bothers me about the sleepwalking is Kincaid kind of wakes up and sees Philip sleepwalking. And Kincaid's yeah. like, Philip, wake up. Then he's, have a nice stroll, asshole. You know Freddy's there. You see him sleepwalking. Have a nice stroll, asshole. And yeah. Kincaid lives through this movie. Yes, <laughs> yes. But my well, favorite visual of the whole thing was the big Freddy manipulating the small little puppet guy. He was a gigantic Freddy over what I took to be like a church steeple kind of thing. And it was just an awesome visual of Freddy cackling and cutting off the strings as the kid fell to his death. Awesome visual. Loved it. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, and again, Freddy still hasn't spoken. I just want to keep driving this home. Freddy mm-hmm. is a silent, m- maniacal killer who kills with glee. We, maybe we've got that ha 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 but that is it. Mm-hmm. It's just, he's scary here, isn't he? He's yes. scary. It is yes. the yes. first time in all of these nightmare movies that Freddy is a scary, malevolent presence. And it is so well executed. Mm-hmm. Executed. Nice pun. I think, <laughs> I think that with the concept of the kids dying in their sleep and they're blaming it all these things on suicide, everything works with this Freddy character in this scenario. For the first parts of this movie... Everything really fits together well. So when they go where they go later in the movie, they're setting it up for us, the audience, to go along with it. It's a very well-structured film. You know what I kept thinking as we go through each death is there's a Willy Wonka quality to Freddy. You know, the thing about Willy Wonka is is that he tempts you with what you want and then destroys you with it. And so we have a character here who really loves puppets. Well, I'm going to turn you into a puppet. We have a character that just really wants to be on TV. The next death that happen, and what happens? An awesome, awesome death. I got to say, this one I liked even more. Like, the deaths get better as they go along. I just was so cool with this. Jennifer, you know, she's a dumpy girl. There's no way she's going to be making on a TV, and she's just pathetic. But she's sitting there watching a late-night Dick Cavett talk show with Zsa Gabor and trying to get stardom and acting tips from Zsa All right, like, loving that. That is such a great thing with the Zsa I'm so upset because the opening credits ruin a lot of things here. It says in the opening credits, Dick Cavett and Zsa Gabor and yep. John yeah. Saxon, which we'll get to. And it really spoils that gag that they had opening credits. How awesome would it have been to have Zsa scream and have Freddy come at you and you, had, and you would have thought, wait a minute, how did they get that footage? I mean, that would be like putting Tom Cruise in the opening credits of Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. True. You want... You wanted to hide that. I already knew it because I've seen this movie from the time, but you're right. The, she, you think that she's just watching any stock interview, and then all of a sudden Dick Cavett becomes Freddy. How brilliant is that? Who, Who gives, gives a, a fuck f- what you think? That is great. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing so hard. I was really enjoying it. And, of course, then the screen goes blank, and she goes up by the TV. And uh, what happens? Of course, the TV becomes Freddy, complete with a rabbit ear sticking out of the top of his head, and he pulls the girl <laughs> into the TV screen. Welcome to primetime, bitch. Really, really, really effective. And like I said, this is a Wonka-ish quality about I'm going to tempt you with what you like and get you with it. What you desire is what will destroy you. Basically, your dreams will kill you. Yes. Uh, Unless 
unless you get mastery of them. And that is the obviously the big theme of this is how do you take control of your dreams and get what you want? It's all done so well. This is writing is so good. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a B movie. I understand oh, this yeah. is not Citizen Kane and the low budget effects and all of this. But how well they've done this, how, the, how well they've constructed a B movie. This is just so satisfying. And it just keeps getting better and better as we go along. Yeah, Every on. little detail pays out here. I mean, even a scene with Nancy and the Gordon at a Thai restaurant evokes the whole Balinese, not that Thailand is exactly Bali, but... Or Malaysian, for that matter. (laughs) But they're close. I mean, culturally, they do share some similarities. There's geographically, they're close. They just tie up these details so nicely. The gray streak that you mentioned that I didn't notice, there's a lot of detail work that comes back. These people have gone back and studied the first movie, maybe studied the second one, but they took the best stuff and they really cherry-picked it and built on all of those ideas and how impressive it is that they've come through what you would never think uh, would be clues and built a whole storyline out of it. They've really done an awesome job with the writing. And movies like Pirates of the Caribbean sequels try to do that, and they don't do it as well as this movie does. You're absolutely correct. Correct. And we'll talk a little bit later about how they expand upon Freddy's origin. I want to stick on the TV death for just a minute. This murder, to me... You could not mistake this for a suicide. That's the first death in the movie. I think there's one more death before that where you can actually – the doctors can probably justify like, yeah, they killed themselves. This dream guy is not real. How would the girl put herself through her TV set? That's way above her. She was short. She's like hanging two feet off the ground. There's no chair underneath her. There's no way to justify that this was not a murder. And the rest of the stuff, you could do it. Here, now, this movie and the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series turns with this one death. And Robert Inglis is very vocal about saying the writers write all of Freddy's lines, but one, Welcome to Primetime Bitch, was Robert Englund's, and it will haunt him for many, many years, because <laughs> this becomes Freddy. I, I've been very vocal in saying he's very quiet. Now Freddy is a jokester he's a punster and that's why i think that nightmare 3 may be the perfect nightmare movie because for the first half of the film he's a silent malevolent killer and he's dangerous for the second half of the film he becomes the jokey funny freddy that people associate the one who's been singing with the elm street group yeah is the freddy from the second half of this movie well, he's headed there, but he's filling out the sweater. He's, he's filling out the hat. I mean, we now feel like we know who this guy is three movies in. And that's it's important to happen. I, feel, I felt that way about James Bond movies, too. It's like It wasn't until Goldfinger until they figured out the formula about how to make a James Bond movie. It wasn't until Dream Warriors until they finally figured out how you make a series out of Nightmare on Elm Street. And Stuart, I'm glad you brought up James Bond because that's where I was going with Arnie's comment about the, the, the puns. Those kind of puns are very much like James Bond, and those things yes. started happening in Goldfinger. And at this time in the movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger brought those kind of things back, like in Commando, yes. which is notoriously known for really bad one-liners. And he continues throughout whether or not it works for the rest of the movie. I don't know, but I do know that I did notice the one-liners were more frequent as the movie went on. And I think some of them work better than others, just like in James Bond and Schwarzenegger movies. Sure, it's camp. You know, what we're yeah. talking about is they've introduced camp into the scenario. And I think it's the right mixture. I think as we watch future sequels, that ratio is going to change, and we'll see how successful it is. But here, the formula is 
perfect. It is. It is exactly perfect. It's just, it's this TV death, which is the corner it turns. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get further and further away. Now, at Jennifer's death, we are introduced to a new plot line, which, again, is something very unusual for a horror film, that it's actually going to have B plots and C plots going on like this. But there's a nun, Sister Mary Helena, who comforts Dr. Gordon at Jennifer's death. And she is going to be the one who reveals Freddy's backstory. It turns out Freddy originated at Weston Hills Hospital, where Amanda Kruger was working and she got locked into basically Shutter Island, the worst of the criminally insane. <laughs> yeah. For a, a holiday weekend. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the criminals had a holiday <laughs> raping her hundreds of times. Yeah. So we finally have established the origins of Freddy. And I and it really prompted an interesting question for me. Is Freddy a Catholic evil? Because when you look at what they built out of this, he now has an antichrist quality. He now feels like Damien from the Omen series. I mean, even the song now, you know, they always said uh, five, six, get your crucifix. Now there really is an actual Catholic force in this. There are nuns. There are insane asylums that were run by Catholics trying to treat the ill. Uh, he has to be buried in hollow ground. His layer where freddy comes from it used to be a boiler room it's going to look like the you know seventh layer of hell now like it is hell it is burning flaming hell inferno at this point it really seems to me like they took a very literal christian view at this point and that freddy you know he's even killing people through the sins of the father which is a big motif that you read in the bible i mean i really thought it was interesting that they brought religion so directly into the series and how well it blended i agree completely also in this though they finally somewhat explain freddy's power for the first time is that he's a poltergeist if you go back to the original movie poltergeist the people trapped between life and death freddy even though he comes in through dreams he's basically a ghost because he's trapped because his body was never laid to rest Mm-hmm. And Kristen's kind of Carol Ann in this. She's even got the blonde, long, straight hair. She's the one that has the medium power that can make all of this change. You know, they, even when she calls from the dream world and sex people in the dream world, it's got that same quality that Carol Ann did when she calls through the TV series. She's like, Mommy, Nancy, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I love that yeah. you just called Patricia Arquette a medium. I do too. <laughs> I so love that. Oh, I didn't realize that, but yeah. you're right. She she's typecast, isn't she? Well, I'll say this: I do see a lot of shining and poltergeist imagery in this. It's expertly blended into the mix. So we then have that scene. I want to get to the scene when they decide that we're going to follow Nancy's instincts and we're going to do a group hypnosis and bring everybody into the common dream world. She had already done that with Nancy before. She pulled her into a dream, and that was how Nancy saw that it was Freddy, was that right. she came face-to-face -face with a giant snake Freddy. Which, giant penis yeah, Freddy. Yeah, which <laughs> I did not like that effect at all. And what in, on God's name is that thing, and why was it there? I don't like that at all. I loved it. I thought it was great. I, you're not, I'm not going to knock Kevin Yeager's work. I think he works great with low-budget horror movie effects. And but what I was it? Uh, well, you know, I got two theories on that. One, I mentioned the Christian theme, the snake that's obviously biblical there. Oh. Also, the character Philip 
at one point refers to the psychiatric ward as the snake pit, which was a reference to an old Hollywood movie in which it was about mental illness and the snake pit was a psych ward poorly run. I can't make any stronger connection than that other than he was a snake. And this goes back to what I said about Wes Craven's original script is Freddy was shape-shifting all over the place. This is a holdover. This is one of the few holdovers from that original where Freddy's always a different thing. I see. So but don't you love that? I mean, don't you always want to see Freddy make those moves? I mean, the chameleon quality of Freddy is at least as appealing as the fact that he wears that glove, in my opinion. True, but yeah, it, it can't go true. too far like that Nintendo game. Oh, well, we'll get there, right? <laughs> so, But, Stuart, it works well in the mirrors. It works well with the faucet. But here I thought it just didn't work. So we're introduced to Kristen's power in that scene that she can bring other people into her dreams. And she mentions to Nancy that she used to bring her dad into her dreams. So then she gets the idea of bringing everyone into that big group dream so we can all discover what each individual person has for their dream power. And I found that at the same time interesting as a concept. I thought they could have gone much farther with it than they actually what? did. What? Are you in Craven's original script, they did go further. And there was somebody who could fly and somebody Thank who could you. breathe fire. Thank and they kind of toned it down, I think, probably for budget. But I, I like my thought exactly because I thought the powers, the wizard master guy, I thought that was great. I thought the, the girl with her, st- her knives, with her big hair, all of that worked. But why does everybody only get one power? They're in a dream world. Why can't the big strong guy be Superman? Why couldn't he fly and be strong? Why couldn't the wizard master, why couldn't he have something else as a power as well? Why couldn't she, besides looking beautiful and have skills with knives? Because, you know, Patricia Arquette gets two powers. She does. She gets power yes. to bring people in and to do, you know, flips and stuff. Yeah, she gets the power of a great stunt double. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, exactly what I was thinking. Like, wow. Um, so that's my not, complaint so about not her but when she's flipping up the walls, but uh, it's exactly. obviously a short man in a wig. But <laughs> yes. The short man from the first movie who was running around as Freddy with the long arms. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad exactly. he's still getting work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my only complaint about this is they gave each one one power, whereas for later in the movie, it really been really cool if they found more powers each time they went there. Because isn't the point of taking control of your dreams to have these powers in your dreams. Why don't you go further with it? But, and so if it's budgetary, then find a way to do something like using heat ray vision to make the wall explode behind him. I was so happy when they had multiple Freddies in the mirrors because I was thinking to myself, if Freddy has these powers and he comes to these people individually in dreams, why not in this group thing have a bunch of Freddies surrounding them? The answer is budget. That's the answer is the budget because it would have been so much better, even though it's good, it would have been better if there was more, this time more would have been better. Well, I think, you know, when you're working in a B-movie formula particularly, you don't create fully fleshed out characters with all these dimensions. You create types. All of these people had one problem and one magic power, and that's how we understand them. Kincaid is the angry black man whose anger is, is turned positive because he becomes super strong. Taryn is the junkie who is hung out and you know shot up, and now she is a punk rocker, tough badass. girl with switchblades. Yeah. Badass, exactly. Will is a D&D playing guy who decides he can become a wizard that can walk. Not only is he a wizard, but he doesn't need his wheelchair anymore. I mean, a really it, nice thing. Which it's is reductive. Right? It's yeah. reductive, but we're in a B movie, and and we don't have time to know each of these people as fully fleshed out. And so I go with it. I love it. I love that part of it. You know, what have I been saying 
about every horror slasher series that we say. It works when you give us good victims. It doesn't work when it's all about the killer. And here, maybe the only time in the Elm Street world they have given us victims and characters that are just as good as Freddy. I'd, I'd like to add two things to this. First of all, I think them all having one power really works because, you know, I've never thought about it necessarily before, but it's what we're used to, isn't it? Like, say, the X-Men or something. You yeah. always get a team of people and they all do one thing. And when they <laughs> team up, then, you know, otherwise you have Superman who has every power and doesn't need anybody, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. And the second thing, though, is that none of these people are Malaysian. They don't do the Balinese way of dreaming. They, yeah. they aren't the dream master. We get to the dream master later on. Right now, they are dream warriors. They don't know how to manipulate their entire dreams to be what they want. They get one power. They're not, you know. I, I hear your point. Here we also get the Joey gets captured scene, which, of course, was my favorite as a kid because, as Stuart would call it, the titty scene. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and another Shining reference. It really reminded me of when uh, Jack Nicholson uh, gets seduced by the woman who turns into the ugly old hag. Only much sexier. Yes. <laughs> and when they had Joey get allured by the nurse, I had a feeling we're already in dreamland. We talked about how they set everything up. I love that there was a scene earlier where Joey helps the nurse pick up towels. Yes. Because it, in so many other movies, would they just have this nurse come out of nowhere for the scene and they wouldn't have had that previous scene. So it allows you to still think maybe it's real and maybe Joey's just really lucky. Yes. It, yes. We, sh we should say here, I don't think we mentioned Joey yet. Joey is a high school debater who went mute. He doesn't speak at all. You know, he'll communicate. Like at one point, he drew a tear on his cheek to show that he's sad. He inspired gangsters everywhere. <laughs> yes, he was. He was rolling in the hood of of Springwood. But yes, he. They've established early on that he has a crush on this nurse. And as I said, the Willy Wonka quality. Freddie knows that this is what you want. All right, you're going to get it, and this is how I'm going to get you. It's perfect because you dream about those things you want. It's yep. exactly I perfect. You're say you dream about the topless nurses. And who wouldn't, honestly? <laughs> but instead, he gets tongue-tied. Which is, again, the first real big pun, isn't it? He doesn't oh, yes. speak. He's tongue-tied. Oh, well, uh, Jennifer got to be on television, literally. I mean, or be in but television. Freddy, but but Freddie's line here, as opposed to primetime bitch, this one, tongue-tied to me was like a groaner pun, as opposed to <laughs> the other one, which was like, yeah. Well, puns are the lowest form of comedy, as it's been commonly said. you got to either go with it or not. I'm not saying it's sophisticated. I'm not saying I'm proud I laughed <laughs> at this, but I laughed. I thought it was I, I liked it. I mean, the nurse spits out giant worm leech-like tongues that basically spread him out eagle on the bed and you don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, it's it's really intense. But what's interesting about this is now Freddy has trapped Joey in the dream. So when Dr. Sims walks in on these hypnotized people, Joey's in a coma. Yeah, that's really a nice dimension. And Nancy is watching over him at one point saying, give him back another iconic moment. Freshy slashes his answer into his chest. So remind me, did the Dr. Bill Maher go into the dream world with the kids and Nancy? Yes. Yep. So how on earth did he get there? Because he, was he wasn't Kristen. Kristen, Kristen has the ability. In. Yeah, she can pull don't anybody. Don't you have to be sleeping to be pulled in? Uh, Nancy wasn't sleeping when she was pulled into the chair earlier. Didn't she fall asleep before she put, pulled into the chair? Well, maybe he hypnotized himself. 
<laughs> I, I actually took it to mean that she could pull anyone waking or asleep into her dream with enough. Okay. But then later on, they have another, we have to be hypnotized and fast because that's exactly how hypnosis works. It's best yeah, very when it quick, tends. Very, very quickly. <laughs> and yeah. then Nancy hypnotizes herself. Nancy learned it so well from watching it done the first time. It's the magical pendulum that goes boom, boom, with the light, boom, which is really kind of cool boom, because that boom, is needed boom, for him to boom, understand boom, what is going on with these kids. He yeah. is finally a believer. For a large part of the movie, I was I was wondering, why do we need Gordon? Why do we need him? He should not have been there. It should have been Heather Langenkamp versus Nurse Ratchet. You know, it should have just yes. been those two. But he does come into play because he's the one that works with Nancy's father to actually put Freddy's bones in hollowed ground. So I, I he does have a point later on, but I hear what you're saying. He doesn't even have a dream power. He doesn't do much for most of this movie other than have back story told to him by everyone else and that's where we go next is they go to seek out nancy's father who i don't know if you guys noticed this because i've always thought he was in a cop's outfit there but when seeing it on the big tv he was in a security guard's uniform so he apparently oh, lost oh, his job i saw How interesting. I it was, no yeah. yeah i assumed he was still lieutenant but uh he wasn't acting like a lieutenant he's in little nemo's bar which is another dream reference just so many clever little bits in this being drunk and yeah, Dr. Gordon takes him to a church, dumps his alcohol out, and fills it with holy water. And uh, they're going to be the ones to find Freddy because here's what didn't make any sense to me. This guy is supposedly the only one that knows where Freddy is buried. Well, wait a minute. Only one she knows that can tell him because her mom is dead. And who knows where everyone else's parents is. This is what I'm getting at. We have now seen many children murdered in this series. How many people, how many parents ganged up on Freddy? It was a mob. It was a big mob. <laughs> it would have to be like, yeah, two parents each. It would, And, you know, a dozen kids. Yeah, it would have to be like 20, 30 people, right? That's yeah. a lot. I almost thought it would be interesting if everyone in Springwood knew where Freddie was buried, but nobody talked about it. All the parents did. I and that they were in on it. I mean, I just Town felt seat. like. There's not just one guy that knows this. This town knows exactly what happened here. I kind of felt like, though, that they all knew about how Freddie died, but that maybe it was Lieutenant Thompson who just hid the bones and he may not have told anybody. All right, I'll go with cop. that. Because he's the I'll cop, he's the authority figure. And if, if he says, I don't know, the judges and the people and the DA would stop asking because he is the law. And yeah, since he is a cop, he'd know not to talk about it because the more people who know, one person finding those bones could implicate them. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And I wonder if it's something that they will show very concretely in the in the reboot. I hope it is. I've always wondered how that played out, how the mob turned, how they kept the secret, how they made the pact. Yeah, I agree with you. And the fact is, I mean, you, you got to kind of go with it. Initially, you wonder how many parents it is. And it, it seems like it's a hell of a lot. You know, this is something I would associate with a much more small town kind of thing. And maybe even more southern, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. vigilante justice versus yes. a small Ohio, what feels like a suburb that it doesn't seem like it would fit. I mean, Stuart, again, we equate these towns for these horror movies with where we grew up, Springfield, Illinois. I don't see Springfield, Illinois getting a mob together to kill somebody the way they would in, like, I don't know, Andy Griffith's town from the Andy Griffith show or something. Mayberry, mm -hmm. can you see Gomer and Goomer and Aunt Bee killing? Oh, if somebody stole Aunt Bee's pie, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, one more thing, though, it's conf I'm confused about then. Wait a second. If the revenge on Freddy to burn him and kill him was by the parents of the children he killed, 
Yes. No, it's the parents of the children he's now killing. It was yes. parents of living children protecting their children. By well, him. and and I was go- I was going to get into that as well. It's it, it was probably both. Wouldn't the parents that lost children have more of a reason to be in that mob than parents that hadn't? Hey guys, I could just send you the first episode of Freddy's Nightmares where we get to see oh! this all happen. It's directed by Toby Hooper, and uh, <laughs> you could just watch it. I'm just uh, well, saying that it's confusing that if these are the parents of the kids who died, then they had another set of kids and they stay in the same town. Wouldn't they all just move away to get, get away from the nightmare? I think it's just, you know, they were protecting the children they had. Yeah. Oh, Let's not ask any more questions on this. I'll accept that this yes. is the premise and that we have yes. to get to the junkyard. He decided to throw it in the back of a Cadillac in a junkyard. I, I love that they put his bones in the back of a caddy. Freddy's death is in style. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was. He was big pimping. He always was. Uh, that's where Freddy's buried, and the hollowed ground is the dirt. Uh, the dirt in front of the Cadillac. Like if they just threw the body in dirt, if the guy had just thrown him in dirt to begin with, I think it's the holy water. The holy water is the key. Yeah. Okay, but if yeah. he had done that to begin with, are we to believe that there would have never been any of these Freddy attacks and dreams? That that's all that it took, just some dirt. If he gave him a proper burial in a Catholic facility like a cemetery then well was that a catholic junkyard no i again i think it goes back to the holy water and the The cross that he stole and and the the brief sermon you know it's a proper burial even if it's not under the best of circumstances Mm -hmm. the hollowed ground thing always did bother me i'm not catholic i have no clue what hollowed ground is i don't know what makes hollowed ground or is any ground you dig a hole in a hollowed ground well that's what i was thinking when they were just digging a hole in the junkyard i was like couldn't they take him to a cemetery i mean uh, i guess it's really crowded now but Freddy's bones become alive. Yes. And they had the same stop motion they had with the puppet. Now with oh, the no, puppet, no, 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 no. This isn't the stop motion of the puppet. This is Jason and the fucking Argonauts here. Yeah, it okay. is. <laughs> I can't there, believe there they go. haven't improved since Jason and the goddamn Argonauts. Ray, Ray Harryhausen must have been a consultant here. Uh, my point That's... exactly. You're, you're making my point for me. I felt that with the puppet, with the cheesy special stop motion effects, I totally went with it because it's a puppet. And they smartly made Freddy go to real size as soon as they could. But then here, I could not believe what I was watching. It reminded me a little bit of Terminator. Uh, you know, the ending of the Terminator when the, the Arnold skin has fallen off and they're and they're in the final battle between Linda Hamilton and him. They use stop motion to show you the inner cyborg. It has a similar quality. I was fine with all of it. Yes, it's a very uh, old school movie trick. The only thing I didn't like is that after he takes on Dr. Gordon and knocks him into the grave, it just sort of collapses into a pile of bones. It cackles and, and, and waves its fist and collapses into a pile of bones. I'm like, well, I guess they ran out of time for the special effects artist because well, wh- why would the skeleton stop there? Well, wait a second. I don't understand how the- they're all both awake. The security guard father and the, sec- and the psychiatrist are awake and they're attacked by this spiritual bag of bones who the power from the dream Freddy, Freddy left the dream warriors part and possessed this skeleton to fight these two. So that also was kind of weird. He was in the dream with them and then he jumped over there and then returned back to the dream after he took care of the two people in the real world. How did that work? They weren't dreaming. It's again, it goes back to the poltergeist thing. He's a spirit. He can interact with the real world. Yeah. You know, he's a ghost. He's not just a dream guy. He's a ghost. Right. But everyone else falls asleep before I they know, die. I know. Just go with it. It's a good yeah, movie. Please. You just got to let it go. <laughs> Just, meanwhile, meanwhile, they realize the cast is too big, and Freddy takes some out. 
<laughs> yes, yes. In one of my, if not my favorite death, uh, no, it is. My favorite death of the whole series happens here. The I Wizard Master? Say, Hell no. <laughs> not the Wizard Master. I thought it was I, the Wizard Master. No, no, no. Taryn, are you kidding? This is iconic. This is the best death Freddy ever does, I think, ever in any series, is that we've established Taryn as a strung-out junkie, but she's now a mohawk punk, ready to take him on with switchblades. She ends up in some seedy part of town. My my one regret is that it's not Don's place, the gay bar from <laughs> <Yes>. part two. <laughs> yes. but, but it's uh, Jake's bar, whatever that is. And Freddy gives her what she wants. His, his knives on his gloves turn into needles. The track mucks on her arm become screaming mouths. And she is ODing. And Freddy says his classic line, Arnie, what a rush. That's my favorite moment, guys. I think the, this series will never get better than that. It's just such a campy, silly moment, but I thoroughly enjoy it. And the wizard, you know, that's, that was less satisfying because what I don't like about it is that he's walking, he's fighting his own chair, he is the wizard master, he can take on Freddy, and Freddy just sticks him. Like yeah. his lightning powers and all of that wasn't enough. I thought the whole point of this is if you can master your dreams, you can take on Freddy. I mean, Nancy just said, I don't believe you anymore. And poof, he was gone in part one. You just hit the flaw of this movie. Yep. If Nancy's there, how come she just doesn't have them all turn their back on Freddy or something? Yep. Yes, yes. It, it wasn't Wes Craven's original draft that she did that. And Freddy was too strong now for that. But really, with Nancy there, Nancy having defeated him once before, maybe you could just see that happening. The kid tried once, got somewhere, but then his fear was taken over again by Freddy fighting back. The whole point is they're there with their powers to conquer their fears, but they don't go the next step. They don't continue with it. They all just give up right away. And yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me that they did that. If they had two battles there, the first time they all you know get defeated and they understand that they need to use their powers better and then go back the second time, they went in unprepared. If Nancy prepared them a little bit better, but then again, the plot dictated that she was thrown out and they had to go back and yada, yada, yada. It would have been you know, nicer if they actually did twice these powers and therefore the second battle could have been really the Dream Warriors binding together to defeat Freddy. Instead, the way that Freddy was defeated was from an outside source. We see that Joey's dream power, he'd never spoken. He finally screams and his power is he's really loud. It works when Freddy's coming out of mirrors, but, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> That's a nice thing for a mute to suddenly be able to talk. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's similar for the Dokken video, isn't it? The guitars were too loud for Freddy. Freddy has sensitive <laughs> ears. <laughs> and they then all of a sudden the mirrors all break and Nancy's like, it's over. Really, you dumb bitch? Really? Mirrors <laughs> broke and you're about to break out the fucking champagne? You've stabbed this guy with a spear. All your friends are dead and you're like, it's over. Really? Yay. Well, you know why you think it's over? It's because John Saxon, her dad, uh, has died in the real world and comes floating down in a, you know, hollowed light and says goodbye. And uh, you know what? This movie is not so cool that I wouldn't believe they wouldn't throw a cheesy moment like in this. I actually thought, okay, this he's come in from the heaven. He was the one that saved her. He was the big protector. They gave him the final stroke. And no, that's just another disguise of Freddy who kills Nancy. And suddenly I am now ready to love Freddy forever. <laughs> and, you know, he does it with such vengeance. He doesn't have a one-liner for her. He just goes, die. Yeah. yeah. It, was <laughs> it was good. It was great. Yeah. He's just fucking done with her. 
and so and so we all were, and it's really effective. You know, of course, I don't like Nancy's, you know, or rather Heather Lankenkamp, so I'm happy to not have that eyesore. But you know, it is a, it is surprising because for some reason, I guess because she had lived through one and a half movies, we really didn't see that coming. I didn't see it coming. No, no, I no didn't. not at all. And so now, what's going to happen? The kids don't have their mentor anymore. Freddie is still alive. John Saxon is dead in the real world. There's only three kids left: Joey, Kincaid, and Kristen. Right. right. So it really comes down to Gordon. <laughs> Gordon being the one to put the Freddy down with the holy water and bury him. And that's it for now. It was a nice effect. I disagree. I, I think it was kind of lame that once again, Freddy disappears in a ball of light. I thought it was cool because they splashed the water and then the water splashes across him like a slash. Yeah, it splashes the kids with. I, I agree, but I, I would have preferred something, I guess, a little more visceral. You know, <laughs> if, if like what he slashed, if that part of him became bone or something instead of just I this see. bright yellow light and him start spinning like a five-year-old getting dizzy. But it was it's the holy kinda, water. It, it's Catholic. Yeah. It's, it's holy water coming down from the heavens. God and power of God. And yes. Yeah, yeah. And he gets the cross on his head, even though the cross is like the size of an entire face right. in the real world. And it's just a little like Charles Manson tattoo on Freddie's forehead. But. I just want to hit home here that the reason I was so disappointed with the ending is this movie's called Dream Warriors. They have this great concept that these kids have the powers in the dreams to defeat Freddie if they just use them. And the way Freddie was defeated was the outside source. It was so disappointing <laughs> to me that they don't have the Dream Warriors conquer Freddy. I agree with that, but if you make it where Freddy was just outgunned, it makes Freddy less dangerous. And they knew they this wasn't the end. They knew this wasn't, you know, we're putting the bow on the series. Only well, Craven had... thought this was the last entry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Still, you could have had Freddy. You said before that they didn't say it in the movie, but in the draft, Freddy became too powerful to defeat him with the power Nancy did in the first movie. So if the powers of these dream warriors, these simple dream warriors feed him this time, next time they could have tried that and didn't work because Freddy's too powerful. Like when you kill Dracula, every time he comes back, he's more powerful. I, I get your point. I do get your point. It is The ending is the only sour note on this whole thing is that, yeah, it's, it's Gordon is the hero. If, we, if not for Gordon, everyone would be dead. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of surprising that way. But you know what? The key to all of that is in the Dawkins song. Uh, <laughs> we're the dream warriors. Don't want to dream no more. Ain't going to dream no more. Some dream warrior... Like, I mean, you're not going to, that's your, pa I'm not going to dream anymore. That would be like if Aquaman said, like, I'm not going to swim anymore, not going <laughs> near the water. I'm like, if you are, if, if dreams are what you do, you don't solve that by not doing it. Like, uh, they, right. they were, it was the ultimate and premature ejaculation. They set us up for a big battle and then they pull away from it. The final twist. Gordon is now at Nancy's funeral. And he sees the nun, he follows the nun, and <gasps> the nun was Freddy's mother's ghost. Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. Yes. You don't have a problem with that, Brock? You don't like the skeleton, but the fact that Freddy's mother's ghost is <laughs> hanging around is fine? At this point, Arnie, I'm done. Because they disappointed <laughs> me at the end here. The ghost, you knew she was a ghost because they set up she yes. was. Yes. The guy That's seeing ghosts, they set the whole thing up before. Whether or not she was the woman who was raped by these other people uh, hundreds of times in that horrific story, whether or not I buy that at the end here, I don't care at this point. But I understand your point of why can't you buy this, Brock, if you buy everything. Well, it's because they lost me at this point. But this man was seeing ghosts, and he's a psychiatrist for these other people. It's an interesting point that it was... This doctor was visited by the ghost of the mother of the guy haunting his patients. Whether or not 
that makes sense. I mean, come on. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors? Stuart. Oh, this is an easy one. High, high recommend. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say maybe you listen to these podcasts for us being funny, but you're not really into horror movies. You need to see two movies. You need to see the first Halloween. You can skip every Friday the 13th movie, and you need to see this one. And then you'll really be caught up to speed. I don't know that you need to see any other slasher movies in your life, but this is iconic. This one is the important one. It really does everything the series ever will do again, all in one big blow. And it's quite satisfying. It's a B movie. There are lots of innate problems with production, performance, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But the joy of it is in the storytelling, and they've told a very satisfying story. High recommend. Arnie? Absolutely recommend. It is, I think, my favorite of the whole series. That doesn't mean there aren't others I really like. But this one, it's just perfect in every respect. Yeah, it has a slight sour note at the end, but I don't know that, you know, when you're dealing with a supernatural monster, any ending is ever truly satisfying. Mm. It's certainly more satisfying than, I don't believe in you, goodbye. You know, so it hits every note right, and it just has everything done well. I recommend this film to anybody, and it's I just can't ever get enough watching it. And I'm going to recommend it as well. I think it's overall a very good movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. And the complaints I have are very real. I think that as the movie goes on, it gets weaker and weaker only because it was so well set up from the get-go and throughout most of the movie. I was so taken by what they were doing. I was game. I thought they had so many good ideas, like in the first one. So many good ideas. And they executed it up to a point they were doing really, really well. And then as I started noticing the more and more flaws as it went, I started enjoying it less and less. By the time the ending came, I was disappointed how it ended, as I said. But overall, this is an enjoyable movie. And Stuart's right. It is a B movie. But you're going into this with less expectations. And what you get, they exceed expectations. And it is an enjoyable watch. So, yes, check this one out. It is certainly worth the time. And now it is time for another Freddy's Greatest Hit. And no, it's not Dream Warriors. Oh. I know. It really should be Dream Warriors. This is the moment where Freddy grew. This is the first real wide release. It was the first one that was heavily advertised. And it was after Dream Warriors that the Freddy merchandising took off. You had dolls. This is when the computer game that Stuart introduced me to... Great game. Oh, it was great. I'm, I actually finally beat that son of a bitch. It was wow. a hard game, and I did it all by myself, and I actually wrote the only walkthrough online for that game with a ton of screenshots. I was obsessed with that game for so long. Yeah, people, if you like playing Gauntlet, this is like the Nightmare on Elm Street version of that. Go hunt that out. I'm sure it exists somewhere on the web, right? And it's a DOS game, so it actually works in Windows. It's a great game. It really yep. worked out. It's when Freddy's Greatest Hits came out. Between Part 3 and Part 4 is when it all started. And then with Part 4, it hit a high time where, for the release of Part 4, Freddy hosts an hour of videos on MTV. And Freddy gets a TV show. Yeah, but it's right here where Freddy's greatest hits came out. And this was the start of mass market Freddy. Mm-hmm. So what's the name of the song, Arnie? This one, again, remember, this album is a mixture of standards as well as new songs. This one is a remake and it is in the midnight hour. Oh, oh. OK. <laughs> All right. And this is the one that I promised where Freddy sings, by the way.
Yeah, I can't say I like the arrangement of this tune. I like <laughs> no. the original far better. I guess I get why they do this song, but... It makes, t- it makes total sense why they chose this song to me. Well, and you know why? Part of it was, it should be said, the Big Chill used this song. It was on the soundtrack, and it was huge. It was huge, and so they were uh, appealing to all of those uh, baby boomers as well. <laughs> you know, not only your warm fan kids want to listen to this uh, album, but uh, you can enjoy it too. With your parents in the car on a long trip. <laughs> along yeah. with you, the friends. If only I had had this on my road trips, uh, going yeah. with my parents, we would all been singing along and slashing the air and moving our head. Just like he do. Although The Big Chill is certainly a watchable movie, I think it would have been improved if Freddy Krueger was at the house. <laughs> and it was used in other horror movies. Like, you, really? know, you remember Fright Night Part 2, Arnie? Yes, I There's do. There's a really bad scene in Fright Night Part 2 where they go, all the monsters go to a bowling alley. Yes, and yes. It was a really bad scene. You don't want to remind me of Fright Night 2 when you record your albums. Is it a worse bowling alley scene than Grease 2? Yes. Uh, yes, by far. <laughs> That's saying something. In fact, it could have it could have benefited from dancing nuns. <laughs> I got to say though, I'm not a fan of the the way that they're letting the the females take the vocal control. Yeah, where's where's Freddie, man? Where's Freddie? This is like Ally McBeal at this point. <laughs> I was enjoying Freddie there in the intro, but where's Freddie? Yeah, they never have a whole song where he's the lead vocal. It's always this chick. Freddie, are you still there? <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting. I'm going to wait until Freddie sings. This song has the theme, the midnight hour, the sleeping. Does Dreamweaver count just because it's about dreaming? I mean, if they could have paid for that license, I'm sure it would have. <laughs> Who knows? It could be coming up. I don't even know. God, well, I hope a little it dream is. could be coming up, too. That'd be kind of cool. Ooh, there is so many possibilities here. If only he did the duet with Mel Torme. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me tell you, this doesn't have anybody singing most of the time. It's mostly instrumentals. So right. there's not much here that's different. Anybody could have done this. Heck, Jason could have done this. <laughs> now listen to me. I'm going to wait to hour. Get him a lozenge. <laughs> He's like Tom Waits. <laughs> are you sure this is Robert England? Positive. Someone... You've asked me this every song. I have double-checked. <laughs> I'm going to keep asking you. I can't see the man doing this. He was in the booth with the cans on. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Well, he was Willie the Friendly Alien on V. Did he really have that much else to do? I loved his Willie the Friendly Alien CD he cut, though. That was fantastic. <laughs> much better than this. Much better, we'll, yes. We'll cover this on our V retrospective. <laughs> he, he had uh, That's What Friends Are For was on there. It was great. <laughs> and I've Got You Under My Skin. Ah, good one. Good. Oh, yeah, Good. there we go. There you go. <laughs> Not very funky. I, th- I, You know, I feel like uh, Freddy killed the soul on this one. My, I don't know. My vote is... Not so much. Better than the Freddy, just because it's a better song than the Freddy. But as a cover, piss poor. 
Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you want more Now Playing, you can visit our website at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow us on our forums. And a link to our forums you can find on our homepage. And we also have plenty of retrospective series besides Nightmare on Elm Street. We have Friday the 13th, Halloween, Back to the Future, Star Trek, and tons more, all of which are available in the archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to thank Arnie and Stuart for joining me today. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And we'll be joining you next time for A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. And until then, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Thank you for listening to our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But there's so much more to learn. Keep coming to NowPlayingPodcast.com every week to get the latest episode. Oh, yeah. Great to be back in business. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, stop by our forums to post your thoughts on this series. You can also find us on Twitter as NowPlayingPod or our NowPlayingPodcast fan page on Facebook. Links to the forums, Facebook, and Twitter pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Next time, don't, don't stay away so long. A Nightmare on Elm Street is copyright and trademarked New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers Entertainment. You think you've got what it takes. <laughs> now Playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers Entertainment, or Platinum Dunes. I am eternal now playing is a venganza media production copyright 2010 all rights reserved In um, yeah, in in God, what's that called when you pull out early? <laughs> Shit. Premature ejaculation. There we go. It, it was the ultimate in premature ejaculation. They set us up for a big battle, and then they pull away from it. Oh, coitus interruptus. There we go. There coitus go. interruptus. Thank. You. Well, I had seen him one time before because, like I said, I loved horror movies. He, uh, I think, the first time I ever saw male genitalia was in this movie called Ghost Story. He's the star of this movie, Ghost Story, and he has a. The only thing I can remember about the movie is the ghost ghost pushes him out a window, and we get a long shot of him falling naked out of a, a skyscraper. So that was the only thing I could think of when I saw Craig Wasson. Was his dick. Yes! <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I've fit. seen you before and a lot more of you too. He would have fit in perfectly in the last Nightmare movie. Yeah, really. And there's no, is there any homoeroticism there, Stuart? <laughs> no, no, there's not. They left that exclusively in part two. I don't know that repressed sexuality plays out in any other Nightmare movie that I can think of. But we Remind can have high hopes for the remake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't know. That's true. We do not know what's going to happen in the new one. It's hard to imagine them going there. Uh, why don't you just stay home and wa- and rent my demon lover and, and enjoy? So. It? <laughs>
That's my Freddy laugh. That was no terrible. Freddy laugh. <laughs> okay, that was you my, gotta that really was my, like that was like a Bart Simpson laugh. <laughs> that was my <laughs> that was my guy who wants to sound creepy but doesn't. Freddy's laugh is more of a roar, isn't it? Roar! <laughs> like that sort of thing. Um, mine wasn't right. very good either. I'm not saying it was. Oh, all right, we. You're better uh, though. We're closer to Freddy. That's because I'm doing the. 